invitation to love. Each day brings a new beginning, and every hour holds the promise of an invitation to love. Welcome to the Twin Peaks Rewatch podcast from the Idle Thumbs Network. This time we're discussing episode three, Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. On Twin Peaks Rewatch, we discuss each week an episode of Twin Peaks, the classic uh, unsettling murder mystery television show from David Lynch and Mark Frost. Um, So on this episode, uh, we are taken to the oft-mentioned One-Eyed Jack's uh, casino and brothel, I guess, for the first time, where we meet Ben Horde's brother, Jerry, and the two of them uh, take advantage of those facilities. Um, We uh, see Bobby and Mike go out to the woods, meet with Leo. They have their deal with Leo that goes goes south, or I guess it already went south, but it goes fucking weird. (laughs) Yep, it goes weird is more accurate, yeah. Yeah. And uh, finally, in terms of other major events, we see cooper um introduce his this is an exercise tibetan rock throwing method of deduction um and then we conclude the episode with his incredibly striking dream sequence yeah so those are those are the big the big ones developments this week although there's a lot more this is a packed episode yeah this episode is intense last week i said this episode is my favorite episode i don't know if i want to get into that yet but i real quick okay written and directed by Oh, written and directed by... Oh, because it was uh, written and directed by Frost and Lynch, and it was directed by David Lynch. Right. Which one, at this point... Okay, so we're three episodes in, Mm -hmm. and given episode one, two, and three, I feel like you can... If if you're watching the show for the first time, you can already discern that there is a difference when that is the case versus when it is not the case. The pilot and this episode... It's so much more striking to me in this episode because the pilot is just the first thing you see of the show. So you don't really have anything to compare right. it to. It's just what it is. Yeah. After watching episode two, which is still obviously enjoyable, then then episode three, which is written by, you know, as you say, by uh, Frost and Lynch and directed by Lynch, it is so much more obvious to me anyway that there is a really, really confident and intentional hand behind the camera and also yep. just stuff written in the script that is so much more bizarre yep. from and... <laughs> from whole scene conceptions yeah like the rock throwing thing or the dream down to just the way exchanges work in the small moments like mm-hmm. the whole back and forth when um when albert shows up and lucy <laughs> is using the intercom to talk to cooper who's talking to truman right. and lucy is talking to albert and they all just cross talk over each other mm-hmm. and it's insane but it also feels incredibly ending natural with, and... ending with lucy sticking her tongue out at yes. Albert as he yeah. turns away Oh, that whole, that whole scene is just like, yeah. Oh, and, and he, as he says, I can hear him per- perfectly well, Carly, says yep. Albert to Lucy. Yeah. So good. Just, it's a scene that just feels conceived of as an entire moment and not just, this is Albert's character introduction, so we're going to have him say a couple brash things and get back to the plot. It's just mm-hmm. like, that whole thing runs through and then Truman meets him and that has its own entire other separate beat that ends with cooper giving the really cheesy thumbs up after yep. <laughs> uh, after truman dresses him down yeah truman uh, God, truman um gives a line that that was outrageous that is a uh, an expression i've never heard before and i don't know if it's because it's a real expression or not 
but he's God, where is it? He says, um, he, he says, you're good at your job. And Albert says, yes, you know, I am. And, uh, and then Truman says, normally if someone came into my station talking this kind of crap, he'd be looking for his teeth two blocks up on queer street. Right. I didn't know what that, I didn't look it up. My only stupid note is when I was writing this into my phone, my phone decided to capitalize queer street, which made me say, oh, is this actually an idiom or known location? Like, what is going on? But I didn't bother to actually look into it, even though I'm hosting this podcast now. Right. Well, we're both worthless. Um, so uh, speaking of, of things that made me feel the presence of, of uh, Lynch and Frost, especially Lynch. Um, queer street is a colloquial term referring to a person being in some difficulty, most commonly financial. Huh. Yeah, I figured it probably predated... Often associated of, with Cary Street, where London's bankruptcy courts were once located. Interesting. There you go. My assumption was that the phrase probably predates like ubiquitous common usage of queer, right? In the in the sense of like L- LGBT, right? Um, LGBT. But uh, um, anyway, so to go back to the beginning of the episode, I yeah. Think sorry, I didn't mean to derail no, no, no. into that's. I was that was a good <laughs> a good tidbit that I should have looked up and I didn't. Um, the opening of this episode is yet another incredibly tense dinner table scene. It's also timed perfectly because it's it's that it's the long shot of the Horn family eating dinner really just sort of quietly but like with little with humming. Yeah. Sort of. Just everything awkward and tense could be happening, but it also is timed such that it ends exactly when the last title card is done, then Jerry yes. Horn busts I love in that the door. I love that it's over the title sequence. Yeah. It's yeah, the opening credits, yeah. That's really good. And just the most outrageous thing. I mean, it's already, it starts already. You're talking about just the shift in, in tone yes. when Jerry busts yes. in? It's already outrageous because you have um, Audrey's brother. Is it Johnny? What's his name? I don't remember. Yeah. He just sort of rocking back and forth wearing, wearing that a kind of Native American headdress yep. thing. Completely unremarked on the entire time. No one ever draws attention to him or addresses him in any way. Um, and then before, you know, you, Jerry pops onto the scene and you have no idea who he is he hands ben horn a huge sandwich and they just start freaking out over how delicious <laughs> these sandwiches he's are. also holding a sandwich three times the width of his head like smelling it up and down and like just yeah and apparently so there's an article i want to talk about next week that sarah sent to me which is a new york magazine article that was written in 1990 after i think episode four of twin peaks aired possibly episode three but i think episode four uh, I'll talk about it next week because this week is pretty packed with discussion of the episode. But one of the tiny things it mentioned in that it pointed out in the article that I that I never catched, ca- catched that I never caught, mailed it. Yeah, was that the when the two brothers are like digging into those sandwiches, they're making an oral sex joke that is like muffled as they're referring to other girls' names. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't, I didn't hear what they were I, saying. I didn't either. And that was mentioned in this article. And the author of the article um, mentioned a quote from Frost. Like Lynch apparently refused to address that. Frost did address it and just said something like, you can get a lot, get away with a lot with the censors if someone's just talking and has their mouth full, which is <laughs> like outrageous. I know. Apparently it was in context of uh, Frost like learning how to deal with network censors by from having worked on Hill Street Blues, mm-hmm. which was what he was a story editor on before before, before Peaks, his right. collaborations with with Lynch. Yeah. Um, anyway, that scene is totally outrageous, and it ends in a I think a very Lynchian way when the two brothers are out in the hallway, um, 
and they decide to go to One-Eyed Jack's um, to see the new girl. And as they leave, the camera lingers on the painted mural behind them of a logging camp on a river. And then there's just a slow zoom and pan into into the background of that mural. Right. Which is, you know, basically depicting the area that they're in, I assume. And they go over the river to go to the Canadian side um, to go there. And it's just one of those choices that strikes me as very, very, very David Lynch, which is there's not probably any real specific meaning to to that. Or if there is, it's very obvious. Um, But he just goes out of his way to create a sense of foreboding and and on sort of just an unsettling nature. And that continues directly into when they go to one eyed Jack's, which to me is the first example in this show so far of the kind of voice of the show intending us to see characters as deliberately descending into darkness for the first time in the present, not through like flashback or description or whatever. And not that it's the first time anything disturbing has happened, but the way that that's shot and the music that is played is even more unsettling and eerie than any of, I think than any of the music we've heard so far, there's these kind of tingling chimes in the background. It's very, very dark. It's shot with these sort of, there's the scene where the girls line up and it's almost a Kubrick shot where it's so perfectly composed. Weirdly one point perspective sort of disappearing down into the pit of the the, deep back of the frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Symmetrically. It's very composed. It's very clearly intended to be uh, unsettling and piercing. Um, And it's a huge, that Lynch comes through in that so strongly to me. It's so overt. It's also, I mean, okay. I wanted to back up, but I I guess I will in a second, but that scene ends in just like the most bleak and depressing way to me when well, I guess it doesn't, it's not the full end of the scene, but it's effectively what I remember as the end of the scene, which is when Ben ends up walking back and Mm -hmm. seeing the new girl. And then Mm -hmm. the two of them disappear into the room together. The way that she acts is so different than any character in the entire show has acted so far. I think I know what you mean, but explain what you mean, because I I want to be sure. There's just no distance in her performance at all. It's just like, I'm in a shitty place right oh, yeah. now. She's not My life is just bad. Yes. Nothing about Definitely. this is good. There's no romanticizing of this. There's yes. no strange abstract Absolutely. emotional space. This doesn't represent anything. I've just walked myself into a whorehouse and this guy is now paying money to have sex with me. Mm-hmm. Done. Like yeah. walk out of the room. Like it's just like yep. and actually the thing I th- I think I mean this is a strange jump to make, but I think that it was important that the show showed that not just for what that means for that scene, but because the thing that was revealed in the previous Ben and Jerry scene, Ben and Jerry, are their names call, also, we'll even make reference to that in the episode. Yeah. But in the, in the previous scene, the one you were talking about where they're talking out in the hallway, uh, in, I guess in the great Northern is the horns yeah, house just inside the great they must, Northern. They must just live there. Yeah. yeah. Um, the thing they're talking about is that the new girl, is fresh from the perfume counter at, I think the horn department store, yes, which, which is, is also where, where Renette Pulaski yes. worked, which implies like one eye Jack's has not been mentioned up until this episode, but it comes up all over this episode, but there's a very obvious strong connection that something involving Laura and Renette is connected to the perfume counter, which is connected to the horns, which is mm-hmm. definitely connected to one eye Jack's. Mm-hmm. So seeing that scene with that girl, I think if you, 
track that back to to your memory of Renette Pulaski, you can sort of piece together a hypothetical, really sad trip right. that these that these kids are taking. Yes, definitely. It's incredibly bleak. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredibly awful. Yes. Um. So that that all of those that whole entire sequence was shocking to me. I've seen the show before. Obviously we both have. Um, but you know, it's been several years since I last saw it all the way through. And, um, I was definitely struck yeah. by, by how just stark and bleak all of that stuff was, um, both in content and also just how Lynch chose to compose and, and shoot it all. Uh, it's something. Um, so, Oh, speak. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, You're, it's your day. So in between that and the, well, it's okay. So the next thing that happens is Donna and James together. And the thing that really struck me about this, I hope it's when they chose to make the Laura Palmer music turn sad. <laughs> oh, I, I don't remember. Exa- I know oh, that they did. It was just the last line. Don't worry okay, about it. Okay. That's what I thought was when, when I'm not goes, as hypersensitive when to whenever says, it goes, are we going to be together, James? Yeah. And, that it goes, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing to watch out for, actually, in general. It's it's always funny if you notice that it happens. Well, the thing that struck me about this is that it takes place in the present. It's not a flashback, but it's not. It's like it's only a few degrees away from, from the that ridiculous Laura... melodrama yep. that James imagines. And it, which I, this never occurred to me until this time watching it. But it's I mean, it's just the most empty language, you know, oh, I'm this would have happened anyway. And she says, Oh, it's true. Oh, it's true. Isn't it? After saying it's true. Right. Oh, James, are we going to be together? James? I mean, it's just, the I know most it's gross. All of the nothing. high schools, like the, like the Donna, James, Bobby, Laura, like that, like that high school set when they're just by themselves, they feel like they're just a parody of high school student relationships. Yes. And then it's whenever they cross any other arc in the story, it just becomes mm-hmm. horrible. But like when Bobby's hanging out with James barking like a dog, it gets scary because Lynch holds the shot for a little bit too long in the pilot. Right. But like he's just a doof or like when they show up yeah, after Donna snuck out of her house and they're talking to her dad. It's just like, what is this oh, yeah. goofy garbage? Way too far apart on the couch. Yeah. Just, like, yeah everything's great. Um, uh, the... One of the things that I was going to quickly cap off my that observation about that scene, it it kind of sells the maybe James and and Donna are the ones who are actually in love. It kind of sells it to right, me because because his fake Laura thing is, is actually now actually just made he manifest. He and Donna, Donna just, oh right. geez, yeah, exactly. Whereas Laura clearly never like, actually bought into that, right? Yeah. Um. So that that I I really actually liked. Um. When Cooper learned, uh, really quickly, I just want to mention this. I don't have much, very much to say about it, but when Cooper gets back to his hotel room, he just inexplicably blows a whistle. No, that's not it. Inexpl- oh, inexplicable. Oh, no? That is the most important story arc of the first three episodes because Cooper takes up whittling in the pilot. He starts whittling a stick because it's what you do in a town oh, where a man, yellow light means right. something. And he starts like even in that he like goes and blows on it or something. Oh, but this I now totally when he goes, forgot. Bup, bup, it's because his whistle's done and it works. And he's oh, like, that's super, why he looks so pleased. About yeah, because oh, he's, he's been whittling a whistle. All right. Well, I'm glad I brought that up then. Yeah, that, only, I was going to bring that up either way because okay. I was like, oh, man, that whistle. Because the only reason I was going to bring it, bring it up is because the only other thing that happens in that's well, two other things happen in scene. One of which he, when he gets the note that says Jack with one eye. Yeah. The only other thing that happens is the phone rings and Hawk. Referring to Ronette says, body and spirit are still far apart, which just strikes me as total ridiculous, like, 
um, fetishization of like American Indian yep. culture. That stuff starts to happen eventually with um, as well with um, Josie Packard and kind of like Asian, but mainly Japanese stereotypes, even though she's actually Chinese, yep. I think, or um, that that kind of thing starts to sort of creep more into the show. And it's kind of yep. lame. But whatever. it's one of those things where they're obviously not malicious and just being completely innocent about it. But it just also feels ignorant. Yeah, I think David Lynch in general has this really strange combination. I think it's what makes his work interesting and good, but also sometimes bad. Um, he has this weird combination of naivete and extreme opposite of that. Right. <laughs> David Lynch, to me, feels like he simultaneously operates in a world where he's fully aware of all of the darkness and subconscious um, kind of neuroses that plague humanity. But also but he also is, comes with like the default set of expectations about the world that are programmed into you when you're a child in the early sixties or exactly, something. Yeah. Right. Yes. That is exactly the case. It's very, yeah. it's very strange. I mean, blue velvet is the most extreme, I yeah. think expression of that. It's just, it's about those two it things is exactly running into each other. Things. But yeah. I think it, it, it comes out in, I think almost all of his work in some way or another. Um, <laughs> my opening note for the next scene is Mike and Bobby suck. <laughs> I keep forgetting Mike's name and my note refers to him as Bobby and asshole drive out to woods. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I could have just said asshole and asshole drive yes. out to woods. But Two I assholes Bobby. drive out into the woods. You'll never believe what happens next. Episode Leo three. hates it. <laughs> um. So the thing that the only, okay, this scene is, is interesting. And okay. Actually my favorite thing about this scene Probably the two, two favorite things. One of them is the way the very, very, very first shots in the scene are. It's all the flashlight stuff, right? It's all the flashlight stuff. And it's, oh, it's a tracking shot. That's like, I looks like just a handheld camera over the shoulder of, uh, Bobby and Mike. And so the only light is the amount of what's illuminated by the flashlight that is also not obscured by their shoulders. Right. And so there's an incredibly small amount of light in the scene, but it's very Yeah, focused. and you're just seeing like two branches ahead at all times. This exactly. was actually the shot, or th this opening of this scene is what made me say aloud, I'm so glad David Lynch is directing yes. this episode. Yes, it's a fantastic This whole sequence shot. is like that, though. It's just David Lynch, he gets sort of like stereotyped as just liking like strobe lights and stuff, but like the lighting in this scene uses like natural in-scene non-cinematic lighting so effectively throughout the entire thing. It's just, it's, it's oh, absolutely. It was incredibly striking to me. Yes. I was just two flashlights. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure there is other cheating going on behind the scenes, sure, but like course. as far as the, the principal lights exactly. in the scene, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's really great. And the, the other thing about the scene that is really fascinating to me, and I'm curious what you think about this because I actually don't remember. And honey, anyway, it's the non-spoiler part of the podcast anyway. Um, and I, I can't remember if there's even anything to spoil, but, uh, when, when uh, Bobby is looking past Leo and he sees a figure. Right, he's like, who's, who's that guy? Leo's like, it's not important. The trees. It's totally unclear to me if Leo. Does Leo even know that guy's there? About. Like, does Leo know that there's a guy there? Or does he just think, like, does he think that Bobby's just trying to distract him so right. he can, like, push him down? Or, right. or is and that Leo's accomplice? There's also a, the pregnant pause between, as I recall, between Bobby asking a question and Leo answering it. Leo just kind of stands there looks maybe confused or, or maybe just or looks annoyed. like his own yeah. dumbass self. Right. And, and then he's just perpetual God. kind of confused anger. 
Um, but yeah, Bobby just saying someone's there. There's someone like whatever, whatever his exact line is. Is, is, is someone with you? Yeah. So like that's a line that is said inside. Leo just of, says never mind. That's all he says. Right. That exchange. It almost makes me wish they hadn't shown the guy, except that the guy was freaky. Like it reminded me of that exact shot yeah. in Zodiac when uh, right. when the Zodiac hides behind a tree. But like. Is someone with you? Never mind. As just an exchange that happens when someone is looking off screen at a thing mm-hmm. you can't see. Yep, is a thing that happens like in a dream sequence or in a moment where someone is actually just kind of not connected to reality. Yes. Like that conversation just Definitely. doesn't. Like Definitely. it's just two ships almost running into each other, but not quite. Yep, like, for sure. And and the the reason it's even more fascinating to me is that later in the scene, almost towards the end of the scene, um, Leo tells Bobby that he knows Shelley's having an affair. It is not clear to me in this scene. Does he know that it's Bobby? Know, right. Bobby because clearly Bobby, wants to know. Bobby tries to like, like, ah, cool. Well, we'll take care of him if you want us to or whatever. Like, we'll keep it. We'll do whatever you need. And Leo does not warm up to that at all. It makes him more aggressive, but mm-hmm. still like quiet. But he and, also doesn't answer really. When, right. When, yeah. So then it's like, is he biding his time to just right. put the smack down on Bobby? Or is he just like, is he just Leo? Is he right. just a fucking weirdo? And as I recall in this episode, when... Bobby and Shelly are together. Someone comes in as they're making out, right? I don't think someone comes in. I think they're just worried that someone is going to. Okay. Because it looked like Cause, in that scene, it looked, this is outrageous that I don't have the answer to this, but I didn't just go and watch it right now. Real oh, quick, no, it just but. ends gross. This, I don't think someone walks in on them because Bobby has this confrontation with Leo that ends with him throwing yeah. the football full of cocaine at him or at his car. And then the next time you see Bobby, it's Shelly's house. There's a knock on the door and it's immediately Bobby just busting in being like, we got at least 20 minutes before yeah. Leo gets home. And it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. But then they start, you know, Shelly's been beat up and they start making out. And then like the Foley in that scene is just the grossest because it's just Bobby's leather jacket, like crinkling <laughs> at 300% volume. So it's just like this. Yeah. It was, oh, it's just the most off-putting. But the way it ends. It I thought looks, it just cut after that. Does it the show? The way it ends, it looks like Bobby sees someone and freaks out. Oh, I don't, man, I must have just not, what? I guess I just didn't notice that good. I, okay, good, maybe good I'm work. misremembering. This is, we're doing a bad job. We're good podcast. at this. Yeah, I, no didn't, I didn't write anything down about it. That's okay. That's um, okay. So moving along. Um, I don't think there's very much to say about this next scene, honestly, but it's Ed and, Ed and Nadine. Oh, so the one thing that's worth saying about the Ed and Nadine, uh, let's just, I guess let's recap what it is first. Ed, Ed comes home covered in motor oil after a mechanic accident and uh, steps all over Nadine's silent drape runners drips oil on them. She freaks and out crushes and them. then, uh, yeah. And then she freaks out and manages to destroy her exercise equipment with her bare hands. She just like bends the metal of her rowing machine yeah, on which there is no comment at all. in the scene ends. Right. <sighs> yeah. I do. We later, we later find out that his dripping of oil created a completely created perfectly silent, silent drape runner. So those the oil favorite, combined with the cotton balls. Yes. Which leads to one of my favorite scenes in the episode this is an episode with a lot of favorite shots, to be clear. Yeah. So this is not even in my top three, but would be very high in any other episode. As she stands there, opening and closing the drapes, looking at, uh, looking straight at Ed, and smiling. And the answers are sad. Absolutely no Nothing. sound. I know, it's so good. Her pose, like, she yeah. kind of gets into, like, the mid-century, like, show model, like, pose right. of, yes. like, demoing yes. this stuff. Like, it looks like it's a magazine ad. But it's just also the audio is entirely removed from the scene. It's yep. so good. <laughs> I don't know how much to get into this because it's on one hand a spoiler, but on one hand it's not a spoiler. I feel like 
this is the beginning of Nadine as all soap opera storylines that are not encapsulated inside of the main storylines <laughs> of the TV show. Yeah, I think that's true. And they also, it's funny you mentioned that because well, this is uh, when they introduced the soap opera. This is when they introduced Invitation to Love, the soap opera, whose tagline, I think, I don't have it word for word, but it's something like, each day brings a new beginning and every hour holds the promise of an invitation to love, which is such a good, <laughs> yep. such a good. Um, yeah, it's a good Days of Our Lives yes, style thing. Yes. Yeah, you only just see uh you only just see Shelley watching the title card of it. Right. The, the, you don't actually see anything of the show yet. Oh, right. So <laughs> I wrote down this note that it uh there's just a triple cut right there that is kind of unstoppable because Nadine destroys the rowing machine. It's a close up of her just wrenching the yeah. metal. Then it cuts to the entire police department awkwardly standing around the chalkboard. Because Cooper's going to do his rock rolling thing. But it doesn't happen. It then just cuts straight to the Invitation to Love slogan. And then the camera pans out from there. But it just like bounces off the rowing machine being destroyed to just yeah. this non sequitur of them out in the woods with a chalkboard and a huge pile of donuts to a soap <laughs> opera title card. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's... Then has, yeah. And then one thing, by the way, that I think really speaks to Bobby's character. He shows up to find Shelly totally bruised and beat up. And then he, he just... says, if he does this to you again, I'll kill him. I mean it. You really mean it? Why do you mean again? What do you what? right? <laughs> I'm gonna wait till the next time he beats you up. Then I'm gonna do something about I know, it. It's Fuck garbage. you, <laughs> crappy guy. Um, yeah. there's a scene with Ed at the double R, which I don't think is particularly interesting. You just see him interacting with with Norma a bit. Oh yeah. Um, and then next after that is the woods, which is obviously incredibly fascinating. Which starts off with a complete almost slapstick gag i don't know if slapstick the right word but um lucy offering everyone a warm-up and then just the instant enthusiasm and excitement at oh. everybody about a coffee warm-up it's just oh yeah oh you bet oh thanks lucy it's <laughs> I know. it's it's shocking i know they're all so enthusiastic everyone is enthusiastic in twin Peaks about coffee to the point that in this it feels like cooper's arc with coffee like it seems like we talked about the fish in the percolator last right. week being them maybe trying to turn it down. And this time they've just turned it up 300% because he takes a sip of the coffee, screams and spits it out because it's yeah. so good. Yes. So And hot, he and mentions. Ho- oh, and hot. I think he might have spit it out because it's hot. He spits it out because it's hot, but then he enjoys but what's left. But then he left. says, that's good coffee, of yeah. course. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. You want to talk about Tibetan rock throwing? I suppose that I should, I guess. Um I mean, so it's there's, okay. There's, there's a lot to talk about, right? Because it's the, pff, what it is. We all just watched the episode. So it's Cooper talking about, well, man, he talks about the country of Tibet at length at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And then talks about a dream that he had, which gave him, uh, the knowledge that he has, or it gave him the knowledge of this technique of deduction where you throw a rock at something, uh, right. and discern information based on the outcome. But this scene is one of my favorite scenes in the show and it's or it was the first time that I watched it because it comes so out of nowhere and like the mm-hmm. the intersection of everyone's enthusiasm and trust and also just it making absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. It's kind of presented like Cooper has this ability or it's not an ability that he has. It's just a technique that some culture uses. But then also the 
the way that the rock throwing works is given huge weight as an actual clue in the mystery and people just treat it right like they're furthering the investigation by like note that the bottle fell but did not break and like oh yes. yeah okay interesting <laughs> right. yeah like that's on that's on dr jacoby yeah yeah i i wrote I, I we probably both wrote all of them down i just wrote the three that actually made any comment which were jacoby shelly johnson oh where the andy- rock bounces off the tree and hits andy in the head <laughs> right and then he just gets totally slammed by truman who says where there's no sense there's no feeling andy well then uh andy gets hit in the head i think he, is he the one that this this all really came from a dream <laughs> i think that's what he says was that him or was that lucy um, oh it was lucy who says that, that after yeah. in that in that scene but yeah <laughs> no you know what it was truman it was truman oh right says that he yeah yes. he questions it you right he, he moves up closer to cooper like, after that dream and cooper says yep and and truman just right. moves away again. and then it breaks it breaks the bottle with leo, with leo johnson yeah but <sighs> i'm always frustrated when i see this scene and they don't pursue the one-eyed jacks thing oh right well, i don't know why but that really bothers me cooper like, says we're definitely going to go there uh-huh. He says we're that is a place we have okay. to check out once he learns the location. But then there's that total confusion about whether or not they should strike it off the list mm-hmm. because because it's a place and not a person. It's per, a place and not a person. Um, instead of Jack with one eye, which they are like, there's not the letter I doesn't appear in the name Jack. They talk about it, but um, it seems like whenever Lucy is involved in communication, there are just four thousand additional details that must be answered at all times, and <laughs> that's that, true, like. Yeah. Where like I'm going to you transfer you to a, the phone on the table by the thing. Who's on first situation? Right. Yeah. yeah. And this is the same thing with like, should I erase it because it's a place, not a person? Yes. No. Yes. No. And then it just mm-hmm. gets erased. You're fr- you're frustrated that he, well, one I just wouldn't want to tell co- him anything though. Say that again. One I jacks would not tell him anything by this technique because it's a, all the different people are you know. Yeah, it's true. It, it adds a second access access into the into the calculations that you can't foretell by just throwing a rock at a bottle, Chris. This is obvious. Fair enough. Well put, Jake. Um, so the thing that is, I think, interesting about the, or I don't know, interesting. The thing that is meaningful about this happening is that it's the first time, I think, unless I'm misremembering something, it's the first time that we see Cooper that we don't have any reason to assume he's just a quirky but otherwise straight-laced FBI investigator. Right. right. The fact that he says, "I had this dream." three years ago that told me about this thing that he now just practices. Right. And just takes as face value as part of the way that he solves a crime. Right. Yeah. I think this is the first, the first one of mm-hmm. these. It also really, it also definitely by the exact same token, if you've never seen twin peaks before, and especially in an era where twin peaks has never existed before it, this is, this was as we, as is the case once again, now the era when Twin Peaks came out, I think, was an era in which there were a lot of crime shows and shows with detectives in them. And, you know, there were there were a lot of shows that had procedural elements to them in the decades preceding this. Um, and this just obviously Twin Peaks right from the beginning is weird in a way that basically none of those shows are. But this this just puts it in a yep. totally different category right with, yep. with with no equivocation but i think the thing about it that makes it so transfixing as a moment and like the thing that stuck out and it's this coupled with the dream which is i had forgotten exactly the contents of the of the dream i had forgotten that it's basically the scene that everyone parodies when talking yes. about twin peaks i i i'd forgotten i thought it had stuff from future episodes in it when i was talking about it last week but the way that the way that the show just onboards you with the 
with what is completely insane and laughable as far as like police work goes mm-hmm. is so strong and so comforting. The Cooper's just like, I'm going to explain this to you. We're going to do it. The police officers in the, in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department just go with it. You, the show treats it on its face like it's fine. Mm-hmm. And like you knowing that it's ridiculous exists, but like most shows that would have a character like this and would have a scene like this would have one guy off of the side going, huh, uh, just like trying to be the audience surrogate telling you that it's mm-hmm. lame. That's but true. all the audience surrogates in this show, which is the entire Twin Peaks police force, which are the people who are not Cooper in this case, just bite off and just take the trip with Cooper. Yep, it's true. And the show, I think, encourages you to just go along with it, which is good because when this thing has a fucking dream sequence at the end, mm-hmm. like that part is insane. But if you were already just like... The only equivalent of that is Albert, but he's presented as such a butt that you're not meant to right. empathize with him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Not that Albert directly is involved in that scene. Right. But he's definitely the character who has no patience for anything but the most. Right. But he also, I think as a character would be more inclined to trust Cooper because he knows his reputation. Whereas that's whereas like true. Sheriff Truman and Andy and those guys have no business. Yeah, this guy just walks into if the a guy's like, and... bring a chalkboard, all of the donuts, a rock <laughs> and a milk bottle out into the woods. <laughs> no, like you say no to that when someone asks <laughs> right. that, but in this show they said yes and just went with it. Mm-hmm. It's true. And I think that just, I don't know. I think just, having the show being accepting of it is probably a thing that allows you to be, to get yourself swept up in that as a, as a, as an insane dramatic arc, just through him throwing rocks at a bottle. It's despite it meaning nothing anyway. So uh, do we have anything else to say about this scene or do you want to move on? Oh, I I think, I think we're good. So I love the next scene, which is Audrey walking into the diner, turning on the, doing the thing that I mentioned last week again, which I still don't know if I like it or not. I, I, where she just turns on her turns, weird she turns on the Twin Peaks soundtrack on the right. jukebox um, and which is just so strange but well, it's interesting right like I mean I, I'll take it even though I'm, I'm ambivalent to some degree but the part of it that I really like is that um, Donna who is there with her family after church um, comes over to the counter to sit with uh, with um, Audrey and I love, love, love in these early episodes the very infrequent interactions between Donna and Audrey um, because they feel to me like a kind of relationship that there's almost none of in this show. The only other exception maybe is like Shelly and Norma, which is two women or girls interacting with each other in that way where just they look at each other and it feels like they have a secret mm-hmm. that they find hilarious or at least like amusing or thrilling in right. some way that just goes totally unspoken. Right. You know, and, and obviously there's the, th- there's the bit where Audrey says, do you like coffee? Agent Cooper loves coffee. And they kind of titter about that together, but that's not even really what I mean. I mean, when they just sort of first make eye contact, both in that scene and also in the pilot where they see each other at the lot, at the, at the, lockers when audrey is smoking Mm -hmm. and they just kind of exchange these looks and have this kind of suppressed smile and kind of just little bit little sort of we know something together we have a shared experience yeah exactly and i love that it's such a great because they're because they always feel like they sort of glance off each other they're kind of not part of the same crew audrey's not really part of a crew right the same way that that donna is with 
you know, James and, and, and Laura and, Laura, yeah, and wh- whoever. But uh, I just re- I think those two actresses play that relationship so well. And I absolutely love it every single time. Yep. God, this episode has a bunch of stuff. And then Audrey also brings up Audrey introduces a connection between Laura and her father, Ben Horn. Where she said, did Laura ever talk about him? Yeah. And then and Donna says, no, I don't think so. And uh, Audrey says he used to sing to her. And then she immediately does the classic Audrey thing, which is he's to sing to her. God, I love this music. Isn't it too dreamy? Yep. Where she just takes a total left turn. And then turn. she just stands up and does her weird Audrey it, dance. Yes, exactly. And the, yeah. And the music hits just a total high point of just disgusting synth horns. Yep. <laughs> okay, let's see. What's, what is left in this episode? There's, so there's the, there's a bloody rag at the police office, which Cooper and Truman are examining as Co- as Albert arrives. Right. And then there's the whole exchange we kind of already talked about. Yeah. Where um where Albert is a total butt to Lucy. Um and then uh there's the incredible moment, absolutely incredible moment, where Cooper is describing Albert to Truman and Truman says, Well nobody's perfect he says Albert lacks all these social niceties. Right. Truman says nobody's perfect. And then Cooper gives sort of gives Truman a glance, honks him on the nose, and then Truman just smiles. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, so it's an incredible interaction. Yep. God, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's a really good way of just totally selling at this point how comfortable yeah, those, those, two, two, guys those are. two guys are together. Yeah. yeah. It's in, in a completely unexpected way. Also, Lucy's reading a book about Tibet. Yes. <laughs> during that whole thing. She's reading up after Cooper's uh, I know, lecture. It's great. Yeah. Um, there's then after that, there's the Ed and, Ed and Nadine, which we already actually talked about. Yep. Um, after that, you see Pete and Catherine together for the first time, at, at least in an intimate setting, not not together for the first time. Right. But like, which is then theoretically re- it's then revealed to not be intimate at all because yes. Pete's just there to like, clean something. Right. And then she says, go to your room, go to your room. <laughs> just the most condescending oh, thing. In, Get your boots off my bed and yep. go to your room. In classic, classic mystery style, Josie was waiting at the door. Pete yes. hands her the keys, and then she opens the safe, and of course there's two ledgers in the safe, because right. Catherine's been cooking the books, presumably. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's like, I wrote an all-caps mystery story, because like, she's <laughs> like, there are two ledgers. Like, obviously there are two. Yep. Um, so after that, we see Leland Palmer at home, and I love this scene for a lot of reasons. One of which I have to admit is because he's playing Pennsylvania Six Five Thousand. I don't know—is that the Glenn Miller Orchestra? I'm not sure who did that recording, know. but it's a really classic recording of Pennsylvania Six Five Thousand, and it's actual real big band music played by an actual orchestra. And that's like I just have to say that is such a nice contrast to me from like Audrey Horn putting on the jukebox, and it's just this like wacky Angela Badalamenti <laughs> stuff. It's so, like not that. Not that I listen to big big band music really in my spare time, right. but just hearing how real that is it, is really effective to me. And again, it's like, is that a song that he and Laura used to dance to? Is that just what's on the record player and he's like hysterical and wants something to listen I, to or whatever? I, you know what? I, I bet it is. And I have no reason to say this unless it's explained later in the series and I can't remember. It seems like the kind of thing, given Leland's character, given Laura's kind of dual life mm-hmm. and given what he does with the picture which is dance around with it i bet that's the kind of thing that as a little kid she loved yep. and he would dance with her playing that song because yep. that big band music like that is the kind of thing that kids 
love and then as they get older think is the lamest thing ever. Yep. But when you're like a five-year-old, it's super fun, right? Um, I bet that that is at and least a possible past that it's supposed to suggest. Man, does this scene also just like... Oh, I know. It's an like, amazing Where scene. he spins around and then he basically starts spinning faster and faster and faster. Sarah yeah, comes Sarah out. Sarah comes in. Yep. Tries to grab the picture, breaks blood all over her hands, sprays all over Laura's picture, yep. and then just gets wiped in. And it's just like... Well, and she screams, what is going what on is, in this house? What is going twice, on in this house at which full it, volume? Oh, yeah. It is so unbearable. Yep. It is. God. Oh, that all, also when he's dancing around and the music is going, of course, a phone is ringing in the background yes. for no real reason other yeah. than just to make it. Just to make it even more tense and yep. cluttered and horrible. Just like, <laughs> yeah, the phone ringing, the music on him saying we have to dance for Laura and her screaming what is going on in this yeah. house all on top of each other. Oh. And then the photo breaks and everyone is quiet and really bummed can you i guess can you imagine just not knowing what this show is and then seeing this on television yep. in 1990 it's outrageous okay and now i know that we're just running through this stuff but there's like, a lot in this episode this episode yeah. is packed but then the next scene is cooper goes to sleep and then david lynch lighting reigns supreme for half yeah. a second he turns the light off and then it's just nighttime lighting mm-hmm. So, which is already in classic TV style. They don't do nighttime by just lowering the lights. They change the lights to like blue nighttime blue, stuff. Yeah. But then that changes again to a weird like spotlight swooping over Cooper. Um, yeah. And then he's an old man with weird neck makeup in a red room yep. with a shivering small man in the corner. And a muffled voice yelling Laura. Yep. Um, and this is now the scene that... I, I suspect for a lot of people who haven't seen Twin Peaks before, but have seen parodies on Saturday Night Live yes, or The Simpsons into the culture. or whatever. In this, a really unfortunate way, I think. Yeah, because this, yes. Um, man. <clears throat> I think actually seeing this, especially after not seeing it for a while, is still incredibly potent, but much less so in a world in which it's just been deconstructed to hell yep. and, you know, recapitulated and parodied and referenced and homaged. To, you know, yep. to, to, I think a really disgusting degree, not that it's anyone's individual fault, but it's a bummer that this was such an original surprising thing. Yeah. And now it could not be far. You can tell that. when you look at it, you're like, oh, this is just incredibly iconic. Like it feels like if you exist in the culture now and then go watch the shining for the first time and see the two twins saying, mm-hmm. come play with us. Like it's mm-hmm. totally very similar right. to that. And like the blood yeah. pouring out of the elevator mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. Creepy twins. Right. The same way that like the backwards talking, the red lit stuff, just mm-hmm. like everyone is just random weird ages and don't appear to be themselves. Like mm-hmm. the weird reverse dialogue. Oh, when I was watching this with with Dana, she asked or she said, I don't understand how they did the sound in this scene. And I know um, actually a lot what of people on the forums asked about this the dialogue. Yeah, the dialogue. Oh, and it's it's I think they must have just trained the people. Oh, yeah, to they speak did backwards. They, and, yeah. yeah, they they would they read their lines forward into a tape recorder. Yes. Play the tape recorder in reverse, mm-hmm. memorize the sounds of what those sounded like, and then everyone acted all these scenes backwards, and then they reversed the footage mm-hmm. for broadcast. That's what I did to record the opening music to this podcast, which is a short snippet of the melody from the Idle Thumbs theme, our other podcast, Idle Thumbs. Um, I played that backwards on piano and then reversed it. And then it. reversed the tape, which is like, goes, yeah, so like it's the, the same, talking in the it's same, the same the scene. as the forwards melody. It's just all the individual sounds are backwards. Yes. So yeah, that's, the, it's the same thing. Um, that, yes, that, that musical thing was a reference to this scene. Yeah, to the scene. Yeah. Um, this scene is also, in addition to just being 
striking and weird and kind of hard to parse at times feels like a gigantic info dump because in addition to it cutting in or in addition to it have like it just starts with Cooper there watching the guy in the corner and then it just crossfades to the one-armed man from the hospital mm-hmm. Mike who is now revealed to be named Mike um the show wanted to have two mics just because <laughs> yeah ta- saying all sorts of stuff about him and being touched by the devil and leaving a mark on his arm which he cut off when he found this, god his whole yeah his whole it's all also from the european pilot right yeah a lot of this is from the european pilot i love mike's whole spiel it's the kind of thing that i typically am skeptical of right which often this kind of thing feels to me like vagueness for its own sake you know vagueness to attempt to approximate profundity um but i i really like how this flows as prose it's it segues from what sounds like almost um myth you know sort of text of myth or uh scripture or something into just mike speaking from first person in a way that is really seamless and i think really effective he's i i took rough notes on this this is not verbatim mm-hmm. but he says something to the effect of through the darkness future past the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. Fire walk with me. We lived among the people. I think you say convenience store. We lived above it. I mean it like it is, like it sounds. I too have been touched by the devilish one. Tattoo on the left shoulder. But when I saw the face of God, I was changed. I took the entire arm off. My name is Mike. His name is Bob. Like that That's an amazing it, block of text. It also, when you read it right then, you can see, you read it so that you can see the verse a lot more. But yes. he just reads it he as reads a it, person. Right. He, like, like, it doesn't sound, I mean, it sounds incredibly good but you don't notice the form of it when he's when he says right. it out well, loud yeah well sometimes you do sometimes he i think sometimes he there are parts where he reads it where he says it in a very deliberately foreboding way um but i just like that it switches um mode between something like through the darkness future past the magician longs to see which is not that's not a thing a human would say but i think you say convenience store we lived above it that is entirely right. a thing that a person says in conversation and then the incredibly smooth somehow the incredibly smooth transition between when i saw the face of god i was changed i took the entire arm off my name is mike his name is bob that like oh i hate bob as a name for this character for that character i hate it but in the context of mike delivering this passage it's perfect yep and this is also the first time we see this character this long-haired guy who is appeared who is, we now in know brief as snippets bob, before. we now know him as bob and he's in the credits as killer bob as killer bob yeah for the first time credited in the in the end credits right. just bob says catch you with my death bag you may think i've gone insane but i promise i will kill, I will again. kill again then you see a candle extinguishing yep and then the and then you get to let's rock yeah <laughs> yep I've yeah. got good news. The gum you like is going to come back in style. Yeah, this is also the scene that has all of the cheesy one-line quotes right. that people who love Twin Peaks quote to themselves over and over again. Yep. Including all of this stuff. Yeah. But then also that, like, he meets Laura Palmer or someone who may or may not be Laura Palmer. She says... Yeah. Co- Cooper says, but it is Laura Palmer. Are you Laura Palmer? And she says, I, f- I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back. What a creepy, horrible, weird butt. Yep. <laughs> Those two things are not related. It's terrible. It's really good. Yeah, she's filled with secrets. With secrets, wherever from the birds sing a pretty song, there's always music in the air. And then the the guy starts dancing. Laura 
leans over to Cooper, starts whispering something in his ear, and he snaps awake. Yeah. What a with with terrible bed hair. I love that there's a gag. I know. I love that there's a sight gag after that. And oh, he wakes up and calls Truman. And well, you hear the saxophone music from from that red room fading mm-hmm. off into the distance. For, even though it's like it's a hard cut, you, he has he has yeah. the echoes of his mm-hmm. dream with him. And then the most frustrating cliffhanger in the entire world happens. Which is, yeah, I know, I know who killed Laura Palmer. Palmer. No, it can wait till morning. End of yep. episode. As he snaps along to the music. Yep. As you, as the episode ends. And then the whole end credits play over the the short guy in the room dancing to the. Yep. To Bellman. Which people on the forum commented on. I don't know if that what tone that thing is meant to convey, but in this era, watching it now, it feels. I felt it actually this time. It feels not good. Like it feels cheesy and like it, it, it actually, which party could you explain more the dancing over the credits oh, instead oh, of oh, Laura's oh. painting or instead of Laura's photo. Mm. It, it feels like it actually pulls something out. It's pulls some of the potency out of the dream scene. Like it feels like watching community or like new girl or some like modern comedy. And then when the credits happen, there's just a wacky kicker over the credits. It's just like a little one-off thing that's meant to entertain you before the show goes out. Mm-hmm. And I, I, mean, I know that's kind of what this is for, but it just feels like, and now we're going to get the shot of the two, like of the comedian from the crew, just like sure. joking around and, mm-hmm. uh, and bye. See you next week. You mm-hmm. know, like as opposed to like, I mean, I know it's meant to be fun because it's a weird backwards dance sequence. Right. But like, it's kind of a bummer to me, given the exact thing that happened right before it. But I don't yeah, know. I agree. the The ending of the episode with Cooper snapping after telling Truman, "I know who, who killed Laura Palmer." Yeah, and hanging up. That isn't that is like a perfect ending. You don't but, really need anything. But then they that. just they have a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, you want to do some reader mail? Yeah, I love reader mail. So you were saying you had seen a post on the forums that uh, was interesting. We we should mention that we have. Um, a web forum at idlethumbs.net slash forum that is specifically dedicated to the Twin Peaks rewatch. And we have an episode thread in there each week once the episode goes up. And then as soon as it goes up, we put up a new pre-discussion thread for the next week's episode, which we then transition into the episode thread. Yeah, so this whole week people have been talking about episode three. And once this episode goes up, if you want to talk about episode four with people who are watching along, totally show up. Um, One of the sort of through lines that was going around uh, this week on the forums was discussing, um, I think just whether or not Twin Peaks is a, a counts as magical realism, and uh, or just talking about elements of magical realism inside of Twin Peaks. And uh, one guy whose forum name is Sick Notes mm-hmm. um, wrote a fair amount about this in a post that I really liked. Um, I can't remember the page number or anything. I'm sorry, but. Uh, but it's in the episode three. Thread. It's in the episode three thread. He says, uh, some of the people brought up the idea of magical realism early on. Um, I don't remember enough of the details of Twin Peaks to definitively make the case for or against it. But then he talks about what is magical realism. Um, and it's often where he says, what, one of the first rules of magical realism is the plot has to have a mundane setting. The second rule is that magical things have to go on in the background and the characters in the story simply have to accept the magical elements without question. Uh, he gives a few examples, including like water for chocolate, which is a surprising thing to jump to um, because I don't know it at all. Um, and his example there is the narrator has a gift for cooking that's been passed down for generations. However, she's not just able to cook exquisite meals. She can perform magic with them. For instance, 
Her sister can have persistent flatulence and horrible breath or make a whole table full of people become sexually amorous. And it's done so expertly that the viewer almost begins to believe in the magic of food. All this is said against the mundane story of a poor family. Um, and then he said one of the things magical realism cannot do is confine things to a dream sequence. Um, things that exist inside of dreams are often more categorized as surreal uh, as surreal elements. And then he said, uh, this is important because in Twin Peaks, many of the surreal things that happen happen in dreams. All of the Red Room sequences, for instance. Um, but the reason so... Uh, then this is the part that I thought was, was cool. He says, but the reason Twin Peaks is so exceptional in its handling of the surreal and magical is that it's attempting to marry surrealism and magical realism and not become irksome while doing so. Lynch and Frost make this easier by the overt characterizations, the music, the sound, the noises, the quirkiness of the real world settings. Like water uh, in like water for chocolate the magical realism plays with the idea of food and its powers um twin peaks has its own mythos that it uses to stretch our beliefs and that is the mythos surrounding fbi agents and the serial killer hunting agent in particular from the moment we meet agent cooper he's already endowed with the armor of previous incarnations of serial killer hunters this is why uh movies such as silence of the lambs are so important to the mythos twin peaks takes the uh precision of these other incarnations and places them in the likable incong uh, incongruity of agent cooper from the moment he finds the letter under the fingernail we understand he has been at this for a long time we're also made to gradually understand that he uh, not only has gifted abilities of deduction he can intuitively tell when people are romantically involved however cooper's dedication and intuition take a rapid turn in episode three we see his otherwise orthodox methods flare out of control when he invites the sheriff's office to the rock throwing ceremony this scene is really fun to watch with a group of people who have forgotten it or never seen it before because at this point in the story, we begin to believe Cooper believes he has otherworldly powers, but the characters in the show literally lean into the explanation and the exercise. They take it as a matter of course, either because they understand otherworldly happenings or because they believe in the mythos of the FBI agent serial hunter so strongly that we are given our first inclination that the characters aren't, aren't phased by the magical. Regardless, at this point, things get weird. It's followed up later with, by the dream. The, the trick and fun part of Twin Peaks are determining those things which happen magically outside Cooper's dream or from his dreams. Uh, until the two different types of fiction get lost in each other. Cool. I read that in a rambling way, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you want to move on to spoiler zone? Yeah, the zone of spoilers. All right. If you have not watched the entirety of Twin Peaks, you should probably tune out for this. I don't think it's going to be long, but we're going to talk about stuff that has not occurred yet. Um, and thanks for listening. You can uh, hear us every week, as you know. You can find us on Twitter at Peaks Rewatch. You can find us on uh, iTunes by searching for Twin Peaks Rewatch. Uh, leave us a review if you like it. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Twin Peaks Rewatch. And we're on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Twin Peaks Rewatch. And our website is twinpeaksrewatch.com. And our rejected episode title for this week. This was submitted by Jerry Salinas. Very topical to this to this episode, Zen or the Pod to cast a killer. So that's the new rejected name for this show. Yes. Uh, goodbye. The one tiny thing that I wanted to mention because I just couldn't like stop staring at it was when. Um, when the Palmer family smashes Laura's picture and Leland smears blood all over Laura's face, mm -hmm. it just looks to me exactly like the end of Fire Walk with Me. Like it was, it was, it was so oh, striking yeah. and creepy. Yeah. Like and I'm sure that wasn't deliberate because that movie was made 
I don't know. I don't know if I would say it wasn't deliberate necessarily. Who knows? It's hard to say. Right? Yeah, but just because like, there's a difference between something being deliberate or not deliberate. Well, I'm sure they weren't like this is what just, Laura's face will look like on screen later on. But I no, mean, but him smearing blood all over it is like. Well, it could be deliberate from the other direction. Yes. Yeah, yeah you're right. He could be actually aiming to recreate yeah. your mind map of whatever of that moment in the show. But man, like it actually just like freaked me out. Mm-hmm. That's all. I remember seeing someone. Um, I think someone wrote in actually a few weeks ago, you know, well before we got to this episode or maybe it was on Twitter or something. But someone said they were watching the show with their girlfriend or boyfriend or someone like that. And they and who had never seen it before. Um, but the person writing had seen it uh-huh. and they got to that scene and their partner was like, is this supposed to be foreshadowing? Like they totally read it in a way that was just like completely on the nose. Right. I'm just like, is this is this just saying something very overt? Which really cracked me up because I never would have. Right, because, well, it is just like this girl who's killed dad basically strangling her picture to death right. and then smearing blood yeah. all over it. <laughs> you know, it's really, it's, it's, when you know, I mean, it's so, it's so on the nose, but I it never, certainly never occurred to me the first time I watched no, it. No, I just thought that it was just fucking and the, nuts. And the, and I want to talk about this more next week. I already mentioned it, but that New York Magazine article that I mentioned it, there's a very – it's not really concerned with like what's the answer to the mystery. That's not really the point of the article. Right. But it comes – you know, just because it's the premise of the show, it comes up at one point wh- as an excuse for the author of the article to just list all the characters in this show as potential suspects. And they have kind of – could be this person, could be this person, could be this one. Probably isn't Laura's parents. Probably isn't like Cooper. Whatever, you know what I mean? Like, right. And, and, and I, it really cracks me up that this was written after episode three or four. And right. the guy's just like, almost certainly was not. These Probably not characters. the guy who smashes the photo and smears right. blood all over her <laughs> yeah. face. Anyway, next. Well, you know, he said the reason that he says it's probably not Leland or Sarah is because they're so their grief and melodrama is so overplayed. Right. That like you can't just make you can't make it that character. Right. I guess. Or yeah. can you? Yes. Well, yeah, you, you they're, do. they're not expecting a weird cross dissolve from one character just into being a like right. a doppelganger of the actual character answer is a little weirder than that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Whatever. Anyway, we're already burning next week. So it's true. We'll All right. Then. So uh, thanks for listening. You know, we told you where to find us. Um, if you enjoy this, please tell your friends. If you think you have a friend who might be interested in Twin Peaks, um, introduce them. We have a lot of people listening who have never heard the show before, and they say it's a really great way to follow along. Yep. Oh, and this is a secret just for you in the spoiler part, but we're going to probably uh, we're going to link to that article in, on Twitter and on the forum and stuff, so you can find it handily. If you oh, want good to point. Yes, 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 yes. Other people don't get to know that though. <laughs> They'll just find out organically through sort of. Our, our social networking uh, mar- marketing rollout. Yeah. yeah. Our PR strategy. All right. All right. Bye.